Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Gareth. Uh, I'm not from here. I'm from a little tiny small part of the UK called Northern Ireland. And so if you're a little confused with my accent, uh, you can email me at Gareth at Christ City Church. Or if you just want to get to know me a little bit more, that'd be great. I just recently joined staff here. I'm really excited to get to know you all over the weeks and months ahead. Today, I have the privilege of opening up God's Word as we look at Lamentations 2 together. But before we do that, let me just pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that, um, Lord, we can share in it together, that we can grow in sanctification and holiness together as we listen and as we read. Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth as I speak today. And Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your word and what, what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you may be aware that there's currently more going on in the world than COVID-19 and the American presidential election. It seems really distant and far from us, but just recently, a war has reignited between Armenia and Azerbaijan. In just a few weeks, hundreds of people have been killed. There is death in the streets. There are air raid sirens ringing throughout the night. Those left behind are hiding in dark and damp basements, their graves being dug in advance. Now, I know you didn't expect to hear this kind of information on a Sunday morning, but this is a real and true and sorrowful reality in our world today. And the text we have in front of us today can feel similarly distant and brutal In fact, there's hardly a passage more agonizing and more painful in the Old Testament than what we see in Lamentations 2 today. Jerusalem has crashed to the ground. Stomachs are churning. There is terror and death and tears stream like torrents. Infants lie tired and faint in the streets and the enemy points the finger and mocks the people of God. There's no mercy, no worship, No walls of the city left, no prophets to bring God's word. It feels as though there is no hope. And so often in our own suffering and sin, we find ourselves in this place of not knowing. Not knowing why this is happening, not knowing where God is in the midst of it all, not knowing how long for. It can feel like we just don't know anything at all, like we have nothing left to hold on to. But friends, what I want to encourage you with today is that in the depths of our suffering and our struggle with sin, there is something we can know. There is something we can hold on to in the midst of our lament. The simple reminder and beautiful reminder that we have today is that we behold God in these verses of Scripture that even in our worst of moments, God is a God we can trust. Our God brings us real and true hope because he's a God we can trust. The writer Richard Newhouse, as he reflected on his own suffering in a moment close to death, said this, I don't know that much, but this much I know. I don't know that much, but this much I know. God is worthy of our trust. God is worthy of our trust. We're going to look at two things in our text 
today. The sovereignty of God in suffering and the faithfulness of God in judgment. The sovereignty of God in suffering and the faithfulness of God in judgment. Now, what I mean by God's sovereignty is this. God is in total control of everything. There's not a hair on your head that God didn't place there. There's not a moment that passes by that God doesn't hold tightly in his hands. God is in total and absolute control. And we're going to see that kind of careful, involved, sustaining power in these verses of Scripture today. As we know from last week, Israel is suffering God's judgment because of her unrepentant sin. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper, but the Lord God has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. As we drop into Lamentations 2, we see more revealed to us about what is really going on. At one level, Israel has been an easy target for a powerful Babylon, a small and vulnerable nation there for the taking. At yet another, it's been a failure in her leadership. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've been defeated by their enemy because of the poor leadership of her prophets, priests, and kings. At a further level, Israel has failed in her covenant faithfulness to God. And as a result, God has cursed them as he said he would do. Israel should expect nothing less for their unrepentant sin. But at yet another level, God has judged and afflicted Israel directly, sovereignly, intentionally, with the evil hand of Babylon. And what has become most clear in Lamentations 2 is that God did not step aside and let Babylon have its way. Friends, what we find is that the power behind the carnage and the exile and the suffering was not ultimately the Babylonian war machine. The power behind the carnage and the suffering and the exile was God himself. It is God who has set Zion under a cloud. It is God who has cast down and not remembered. It is God who has swallowed up and broken down and brought down to dishonor. It is God who has cut down and withdrawn his protection and burned and bent his bow. It is God who has killed and poured out his fury. It is God who has done these things. It is God who has acted against Israel. And just as it would have been for the Israelites, it is almost overbearing to try and comprehend. How, Lord? How, how could you, Lord? But it is no less obvious that it is clearly and emphatically God who has brought down Jerusalem. It is the sovereign God of the universe who was in total control and wicked Babylon was his instrument for his judgment. Friends, this is as difficult to comprehend for us as it would have been for Israel. It was Israel's temple, their worship, the presence of God in their midst that made them special among the nations. The very essence of Israelite identity was that God had chosen them to stand in the gap between heaven and earth, between God and the rest of his creation. 
in destroying the temple, God had removed their identity as a people and he had removed his presence from himself. As a result of their persistent sin, all of their former glory was gone. Israel's special place among the nations had disappeared. Their splendor had been cast down. Their beauty had been lost and God had withdrawn himself from their midst. As we read in verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. Friends, even in this, even in the worst imaginable event in Israel's history, God is sovereign. God was in total and absolute control. But what are we meant to do with such a picture? What are we meant to do with such total completeness in God's control over suffering? Some of us hear this and we rejoice. God is in control. Some of us hear this and we recoil. God's in control. The obvious question for us is, why is this good? Why is it good that God is sovereign over the gravest of sin, the deepest of suffering and the worst of evil? Is one sense to have a sense of God's goodness in a broad way, and yet it is another to believe that God is good when my wife is dying, or when I've just lost a baby, or when you walk through the downtown east side, or when my heart has been hard to years of persistent sin. Years after the fall of Jerusalem, Babylon itself was defeated by the Persians. And King Cyrus of Persia makes a decree that the people of Israel return from exile with the explicit purpose of rebuilding the temple. As a group of people returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the prophet Haggai tells us this. The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Friends, in his sovereign purposes, God had ordained the suffering of his people to bring them back to himself. God's people obeyed the voice of the Lord that they had rejected for so long. Their suffering was not without meaning all along because God was using it to tear down their idols and bring them out of their sin. Babylon struck Israel out of malice and power, but God struck Israel out of loving concern for his people and his glory. And friends, I hear you thinking Garth, we aren't Israelites. We don't experience the judgment that they experienced because Jesus has paid the price for us. And with you, I say yes, yes, and amen. And yet, as those in Christ today, we can hold on to the same beautiful truths. God is in complete, meaningful control of our suffering for our good, even the suffering brought about by our own sin. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And I know we find it hard to imagine that any suffering can be for our good. When the world is struck by a pandemic, when the body is sick with cancer, when the paycheck didn't quite cover our expenses, when we get that late night call that changes our lives forever. But like a good and loving father, God is disciplining us in our suffering. He is bringing us to holiness in him, obedience to him, trust towards him, and causing us to produce the fruit of righteousness. Friends, there is meaning in our suffering because God is in complete control of it. Let me use COVID-19 as an example. At one level, it is the result of poor food safety measures, open animal markets, globalized travel. At another, the pandemic is a failure of leadership of our countries to protect its citizens. At yet another, it is because of the brokenness of sin in this world that we experience a disease like COVID-19. And yet also, and undeniably, God is in sovereign control of COVID-19. And through the suffering we experience, he is disciplining us and bringing us nearer to himself. Friends, God is in total control of our suffering for our good. My fiance and I are due to get married in just a couple of weeks. And because of COVID, our families here from Mexico and the UK won't be able to be there. And so many of the things that we'd envisioned won't be able to happen. And though we are excited and anxious, it has been a hard and burdensome time. There's been so much stress and often our souls have been downcast. But friends, already in God's grace, we have been able to see that he has sovereignly used this time to uproot some of our idols. Idols around family and tradition. Idols around our own glorification. Idols around pleasing others over him. God has been using something as large as a global pandemic to sanctify us as large as a global pandemic, to work on something as small as my personal sanctification, to uproot my sin and turn me away from idols. God has been disciplining me through suffering. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way, there's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There's nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation. God is in control. God is in control. And I know that's a real challenge to us. 
It's a challenge to us because when hardship comes our way, we often try to control it ourselves. We try to numb it with uh, entertainment and escape. We try to cover it over with materialism and wealth. We try to control it by deadening our emotions and pushing them down. We avoid repentance. And we avoid facing the idols in our hearts. But the sovereignty of God over all things in the worst moments of our lives means our suffering is never wasted. Our suffering is never wasted. We don't need to numb it or avoid it or hide it or control it. Friends, I don't know your situation, your sin, your suffering. But whether it's sickness or death or mental health or you're just having a bad week, there is a truth that we can hold on to. There's a God we can turn to in our honest, lamenting cry who is in total control of our suffering for our good. Friends, I don't know that much, but this much I know. God is in control. God is sovereign in our suffering. As we move to our second point, God's faithfulness in judgment, I hope by now we'll see that because God is sovereign, he cannot be anything other than faithful. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to himself. As we read in verse 8 of this chapter, the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. Literally, the Hebrew says something like he thought up a plan. God devised a plan to lay to ruin Zion. Verse 17 picks up on the thought of verse 8 and stresses that what Israel has experienced was not an unfortunate accident. God had planned it from long ago. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. This was not some impulsive action of God. God did not punish Israel on a whim. This was the final outworking of God's covenant curses that had stood as warnings in the law and the prophets for centuries. Paul House puts it this way. From start to finish, the poem charts what it means to experience God's direct, purposeful, unstinting judgment. What is clear in the verses here is that the suffering of Israel is not just the work of a God in total control of the present. It is the result of careful planning. In the midst of the promised curses of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord makes clear the consequences for Israel's lack of covenant faithfulness. All these curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And again in Leviticus 26, but if you will not listen to me and you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then this I will do to you. I will set my face against you and you should be struck down before your enemies. God has not surprised them with his judgment. 
Israel are due exactly what God had promised them long ago for their unfaithfulness. And he has been nothing short of faithful to them in his judgment. And friends, while this sounds harsh and unrelenting, let me tell you why God's covenant faithfulness to judge sin and disobedience is good news. If you come here today and you're a follower of Christ, here is a truth of which you can be sure. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Brothers and sisters, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, God determined and planned to look upon you as perfect and righteous. But we're not. We're not holy. We're not blameless. We knew like Israel, we're disobedient and full of sin and we worship idols every day. How can it be that God will look upon me and you as holy? Because God, faithful in his judgment over sin, is faithful to call you holy and blameless before him because Jesus Christ has been judged on your behalf. Paul, soaked in the language of Scripture and aware of these covenant curses and blessings, says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that Jesus, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, God decided by his good pleasure before the foundation of the world to judge your sin in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Knowing that in our sinfulness, neither you nor I could keep the law, brothers and sisters, Christ became a curse for us. God's judgment was poured out on him in our place. It is in the judgment of Christ for our sin, yours and mine, that we can lament, hopefully in the present, knowing our punishment will never be fully laid upon us. And it's in the resurrection of Christ for fallen humans where they're renewed and reaffirmed that we can lament hopefully towards the future knowing that suffering and death and sin will be no more. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more tears. God is faithful in his judgment and in the person of Christ, God became the judge and the one judged in our place. And if you're in him, you have been chosen to be righteous and holy because of the saving work of Christ on your behalf. If you're listening today and you're not a believer in Jesus' saving work, I urge you to consider a few things. Consider Israel's judgment. Consider their sin. Consider the lament of that sin an invitation to repent. And consider Jesus' life, 
death and resurrection for you, an act of love and justice and mercy, that you might be holy and blameless before him. Friends, I don't know that much, but this much I know. God is faithful in his judgment. Brothers and sisters, I preach this from my own personal struggle to see God as good and sovereign and faithful and suffering comes my way. Too often my heart cannot see the eternal truths of Scripture. But they are true. They are true. And our lament has to take account of the fact that God is worthy to be trusted. As I was reflecting on the text this week, the words of a Michael W. Smith classic came to mind. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You're working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You're sovereign over us. Friends, our lament is the path of our sovereign sorrow towards a just and faithful and loving God. And in the depths of our suffering and sin, when things are beyond our understanding and our control, may we be able to say, we don't know that much, but this much we know. God is sovereign in suffering. He's faithful in judgment. And because of that, God is worthy of our trust. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you that the depths of your word cover all the circumstances of our lives, and that even in difficult texts like this one, you're teaching us, you're refining us, you're sanctifying us, you're bringing us to yourself, and I pray, Lord, you would comfort us, you would fill us with hope this morning as we know that you're sovereign and faithful and just, and you're worthy of our trust. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.